podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL roundtable feed. So just search EPL roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now on with the show. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Thursday, the 6th of April. Hope you're all having a good day. Not as good as me. You're not having as good a day as me. Because, ladies and gentlemen, in the last 15 minutes, it has been made official. Frank Lampard is the manager of Chelsea on a caretaker basis until the end of the season. And this brings me massive joy. This is, without doubt, one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. Now, here's what will happen. Chelsea are currently 11th. They will likely finish around 9th. 
Fulham will be without Mitrovic for the next few weeks, well, the next eight games. So you'd fancy Chelsea to overhaul them. And they'll overhaul at least one of the others, probably Brentford, maybe Aston Villa as well. And maybe they get into the top eight. And when that happens, Frank Lampard's friends in the media, who are lauding disappointment, lauding it. We've had Jim White waxing lyrical about it. We've had Oliver Kay continue to show the Brexit streak that runs down the middle of his back. We've had multiple others come out and say, oh, this is such a smart move. This will unite the fan base. Any fan excited by this is away with the fairies. This guy is dreadful. Let's recap Frank Lampard's managerial career. So Frank retires as a player in 2016. In 2018, his uncle, Harry Redknapp, contacts Mel Morris, the owner of Derby, and asks him to give Frank the now vacant manager's job. Derby, the previous season, the 17-18 season, had finished sixth under Gary Rowett. And they'd lost in the semi-finals of the playoffs. Having won the first leg at home, they lost the second leg away to Fulham. And Fulham would, of course, get promoted to the Premier League. Gary Rowett moves on. In comes Frank Lampard. He spends a bunch of money. Raises their wage bill to a point where it is completely unmanageable for a championship club. Brings in the likes of Ashley Cole on a free. Brings in Mason Mount, Harry Wilson, Fakayo Tamore and Andy King. All of whom are earning decent wages above what normal championship players would be earning. And finishes... In sixth place. Does manage to get them to the playoff final. Loses to a fairly average Aston Villa team that had been in the bottom half when Dean Smith took over and gone on a really good run. But he did beat Bielsa in the playoff semi-final. That was his kind of big achievement there. As Leeds fans sang Stop Crying Frank Lampard to the tune of Stop Crying Your Heart Out by Oasis, Derby went on and won the second leg 4-2, having lost the first leg at home, and made their way to the final, where Frank bottled the final. So having failed at Derby, having told Mel Morris, I'll get you promoted, back me, I'll get you promoted, being backed, finishing in the same league spot as Gary Rowett, He went one step further than Rowett, got to the playoff final, but lost it. He managed somehow to turn that into the Chelsea job. Now, the main reason he got the Chelsea job is because Chelsea were facing a transfer embargo. And top managers were hesitant to take it because there'd been a lot of rumours about whether or not Abramovich was invested in the club anymore. So... Maurizio Sarri had finished third, lost the League Cup final, and won the Europa League final. 
that summer, Chelsea had bought Mateo Kovacic, who they'd had the previous season on loan. They'd made that permanent. They had Christian Pulisic arrive at the club, having bought him in the January, because they knew Hazard was leaving. They knew they wouldn't be able to buy in the summer. So they bought Pulisic in the January. They also welcomed back to the club the likes of Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham, and Fikayo Tsumori. They finished fourth, so worse than the previous season. They got to the FA Cup final against a bad Arsenal team and bottled the final. They went out in the round of 16 in the Champions League. They did not play good football. And the only reason they actually made top four that season is because Leicester bottled top four that season in one of the most spectacular end-of-season choke jobs you'll ever see. We discussed that. We talked about Rodgers getting the sack. So that's season one. Frank is loaded for this season. Loaded for it. Apparently, because he didn't take them as far backwards as everybody expected them to, he deserved huge credit for that. But they regressed under Frank. And then in the 2021 season, they handed him a blank checkbook. He signed Hakim Zayic. He signed Timo Werner. He signed Ben Chilwell. He signed Kai Havertz. He signed Eduard Mendy. He signed Thiago Silva. And multiple pundits, including a couple of people I actually respect, came out and said that this was, and I quote, the best transfer window anyone has ever had. Not one of the best. The best. The best transfer window anyone has ever had. With a net spend of 144 million. So good old Frank goes into the season and proceeds to soil himself on a repeated basis. Chelsea would lose six of their first 19 games in the season. And by the time they sacked Frank after that 19th game, they were sitting in ninth place in the Premier League. They brought in Thomas Tuchel, who went on to win the Champions League and secure a fourth place finish. Because Thomas Tuchel is a real football manager, not a PE teacher like Frank. So Frank sacked, having failed once again with Chelsea. That's two jobs, two failures. We travel forward in time. There are multiple, multiple well-known journalists, national journalists, writing pieces about Frank Lampard deserves another crack at management. He's hungry for it. He feels he's learned from his time at Chelsea. And he's put together a dream team of coaches. So, in January of 2022, Frank Lampard is appointed manager of Everton. He's appointed on the 31st of January. Everton, at that time, had played 23 games in the league and sat 16th. 
Frank would lose his first game in charge, then beat Leeds, then lose four in a row, then beat Newcastle, then lose two in a row, then beat Manchester United and draw with Leicester before losing to Liverpool, finding their way into the bottom three, and then three wins from their last six saw them finish in 16th, where they were when he took over. Frank was lauded for this. He's worked wonders to keep them up, screamed the gammon and gravy media. What a job he's done. Now, bear in mind that Rafa Benitez had dealt with a massive injury crisis and no money to spend the previous summer. Into this past summer we go, obviously, Richarlison leaves. And Frank goes to town. He brings in Dwight McNeil, Amadou Onana, Neil Mopé, James Garner, and Adrissa Ganagay. And James Tarkovsky on a free on big wages. He was sacked a week short of his one-year anniversary at the club on the 23rd of January this year. Everton had played 20 games, 20, 20, 21 games, and sat 19th in the league. 19th in the Premier League. 20 games in, 19th. They had won three and taken 15 points. Sean Dyche, in 10 games since replacing him, has won three and already taken 12 points to move them out of the bottom three. They're currently on a four-game unbeaten run. But you'll remember earlier this season when Everton went on a six-game unbeaten run, where they drew four games in a row with Nottingham Forest, Brentford, Leeds and Liverpool before beating West Ham and Southampton. Now, when we look at that run in hindsight, Liverpool are dreadful this season. Four of the other five are, like them, relegation father. So those do prove to be valuable points taken off rivals. But, you know, there was a three-game losing streak. Then there was a run of eight games without a win, which saw him lose his job. Not only that, but they got dumped out of the FA Cup by Manchester United and dumped out of the EFL Cup by Bournemouth. Bournemouth managed to wallop them twice in four days. A 4-1 defeat in the Cup for Everton, followed by a 3-0 defeat in the league. Now, bear in mind, Bournemouth hadn't won a game in ages and wouldn't win another game for a while. But they managed to wallop Everton twice. There were fans that paid twice to travel all the way from Liverpool to Bournemouth for those games. And a quick search on Google will tell us how long of a journey that is. So, um, if you're driving, it is a five and a half hour drive. Now, on a bus, that's going to be longer. It's probably six and a half hours. Six and a half hours down, six and a half hours back. 
That's 13 hours. So people committed 26 hours of their lives to travel down and back up the country twice to watch Everton get spanked. And he was rightly fired and he could have no complaints. So he'd had three jobs, been sacked twice and failed all three times. Fantastic. And here he is stumbling back into the Chelsea job. Now, it is to the end of the season. But like I said, I guarantee it now. If they finish ninth or eighth, he will be lauded. Lauded. And people will start to demand that he get consideration if not for this job, for other Premier League jobs, despite the fact that we have a litany of evidence that Frank Lampard is not a Premier League caliber manager. In 44 games at Everton, he won only 12. 27.3% of his games. In 84 games at Chelsea, he won only 44. And that was with a team that had finished third and won the Europa League. That was one of the best teams in Europe. He made them significantly worse. But as Thomas Tuchel proved when he came in, there was a lot of talent there, and he went on and won the European Cup. This is a dreadful manager. Now, I get it. Bowley wants to get the fans on board because the whole thing has been a circus. Their season is a joke. They sacked Thomas Tuchel, who's now the Bayern Munich manager, one of the best managers in the world, and replaced him with Graham Potter, who clearly wasn't anywhere close to ready for that type of job. Paid a fortune to do that, and then had to pay a fortune to sack Graham Potter. Graham gave Bruno Salter one game. Bruno Salter actually, to be fair, outworked Klopp in his only game in charge. So I'm guessing he's going to leave the club. I just think it's a bit of a shame that he's been uh, shanghaied so quickly. Uh, Guy has informed me that Ashley Cole will also return to Chelsea as part of Frank Lampard's uh, backroom staff. It'll be interesting to see What happens with Anthony Barry? Will he stay at the club now that Frank is back? Or will Thomas Tuchel get his wish and bring him to Bayern? He's a very, very highly regarded coach. And Tuchel thought highly of him when he was there the first time, when he was at Chelsea. He's also part of um, Roberto Martinez's coaching staff with... Portugal. He had previously worked with Belgium for a time. Um, It will be very interesting to see just how much of a mess Frank can make of this. Like, it can't can't really get any worse. And it is a no-risk appointment because they're not going to go down. They've, They've achieved 39 points, I believe it is. Was it? What are their points for the season? Yeah, 39 points they've got. So they're not going to go down. They should be able to overhaul Fulham 
without their best player. That should be something they can achieve. Though there is then a four, there is then yeah, there's a four point gap to Brentford and Liverpool, five points to Villa, seven to Brighton, who've got two games in hand on them. Liverpool also have a game in hand on them, as do Fulham, to be fair. But I would guess they finish ninth or eighth if Villa go on the beach early. But I think they'll overhaul Fulham, Brentford, and maybe Villa. And he'll be loaded for this, as if they shouldn't overhaul them. As if they haven't spent more money in the last 12 months than those three clubs have in the last five years combined. Only in the Premier League would one of the top clubs give this idiot a job. Oh, welcome back, Frank. Another one of Frank's former clubs will likely be looking for a new manager soon. West Ham were beaten 5-1 last night at home by Newcastle. Callum Wilson put the tune one up on six minutes. Great cross, great cross from St. Maximum. Found Wilson, good header, good goal. Tune off the races on 13 minutes. Simple ball through the defence. Jolington runs on to it. I think all the defenders just assume he's offside. So Kurt Zuma makes no effort to get back. Uh, Jolington goes round the keeper and finishes. And, and if somebody can tell me why Fabianski's back in the team, I'd love to know. Um, VAR checked the goal because it was flagged offside, but VAR checked and the goal was given. 2-0 to the tune. Kurt Zuma got one back with a header from a set piece on 40. A minute into the second half, West Ham are pricking about with the ball in their own penalty area. And Neyef Agard receives the ball and turns and I don't think realises that uh, young Murphy, uh, he's probably not young anymore, that uh, Jacob Murphy is closing him down. Murphy takes the ball off him, feeds Callum Wilson who taps home. 3-1. And it looked like it would stay that way. It was a fairly stale game then for probably half an hour. But on 82, it's a simple ball over the top. Fabianski comes out. God knows what he's trying to do. He basically gives the ball straight to Isak, who controls it and just lobs it over the defender who's covering and then stands there admiring his work with his hands on his hips in what will be a really cold photo Someone has a good picture of that. I'd like to see it. Great finish. Great finish. Um, Jolington wrapped it up on 90. It's a simple long ball over the top. He runs onto it. Takes a good first touch and finishes past Fabianski. Uh, 5-1. 5-1 at home. West Ham have been walloped here. And all of their players should be ashamed. There's no leadership. There's no direction. There's no fight. There's no want. This is a team that's given up. And West Ham are going to have to make a decision now. David Moyes' position is untenable after that result, after that performance. Four of those goals come down to dreadful defensive work. 
the Wilson one is really good play by St. Maximum. But Wilson is still unmarked in the penalty box. So you could tag that one as well. But the Jolington one, they're just, they're opened up so easily. Wilson second, they're pricking about. Isaac's for Isaac's goal, they're pricking about. And the second Jolington one, I mean, that is that is a horrendous goal to concede. Bruno Gomerish had the time of his life out there. Nobody got within five yards of him. Could pick any pass he wanted. Sean Longstaff ran Declan Rice ragged. Sean Longstaff, not some great player. Sean Longstaff, through sheer effort and desire, ran Declan Rice ragged. Now, Declan Rice is having an abysmal season. He has been nothing short of a disgrace this season in terms of his performances, his actions, the way he's spoken in the media multiple times talking about how he thinks he's ready to move on to a Champions League club. Well, your performances don't warrant a move to a Champions League club, buddy. Your performances warrant a trip back to the Championship with West Ham. You're meant to be the captain setting the standard. You gave up last night after Sean Longstaff made you look awful. Like, it's one thing when Caicedo makes him look crap or any of the really good midfielders in the league make him look bad. But Sean Longstaff. I mean, when they beat Southampton last week, Lavia completely outplayed him. But Lavia is a mega talent. Sean Longstaff is a run-of-the-mill player. And he just dominated him. And if you were to show somebody who didn't know any better that game and say, which one of these do you think is the regular starter for England that people are talking about an £80 million transfer for, transfer for, not one person would have looked at Rice. Not one. And when I see people on Twitter talking about Rice, I just assume they don't watch West Ham play. Because he is having as bad a season as I can remember any player who's gotten that much hype ever have having. Manchester United continued their good home form last night with a 1-0 win over Brentford. Marcus Rashford with a tidy finish after the ball was laid on a plate for him. I'm trying to think who laid it on a plate for him. It was a knockdown. Let me see, let me see, let me see. Sabitzer. Sabitzer laid it on a plate from knockdown header. Great finish. Uh, United were good value for the win, but Kevin Shaddy should have equalised. Tony sent him through 1v1. He took an extra touch he didn't need to take. Got too close to the keeper. De Gea did well, and he had no angle to finish. He should have shot earlier. And I think he would have caught De Gea flat-footed. Um, but United were good value for their for their victory. So in the Premier League now, we have Arsenal still top, eight points clear of City, who have a game in hand. City are nine points clear of Newcastle, who are third on goal difference. Then we have Manchester United in fourth, level on points with Newcastle, obviously. Then Spurs are a game back. 
and Spurs have, sorry, are three points back, but they've also played a game more. Then you have Brighton on 46 points. Seven points behind the Champions League places. They do have a game in hand, but that's a lot to overhaul. And I I could see Brighton having a bit of a wobble. They've got some tough games coming up. Then it's Aston Villa. Then it's Liverpool, Brentford, Fulham, Chelsea. Uh, Brentford in ninth after the weekend. That's only their sixth defeat of the season, though. So that's that's a pretty good um, showing from them. They've had a lot of draws, though. Uh, Chelsea, Fulham, Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Leeds, Wolves. West Ham are 15th, despite that walloping they took last night. But they are only level on points with Bournemouth, who are in 18th. They do still have a game in hand, though. So that's kind of their get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, shambles. An absolute shambles last night. We will take a break. When we come back, we have listeners' questions. So we'll see you in a minute. Bye-bye. Right, welcome back. So, it is listeners' questions time. We have two from Twitter and a few from Discord. So, let's find these. Now, uh, apologies to Sandy Rush at Rushy Tour on Twitter. Uh, You sent this on Friday the 20th of January, and I've only seen it because it was sent to the EPL Index Twitter account, and it was in the messages that are waiting approval, and I only saw it yesterday. So, apologies uh, for the delay. I'd be curious to hear Dave's assessment of Johan Cruyff's career as a player, but also as a manager, underrated or overrated. I would say, I think as a player, he's actually become underrated because so much focus has been on his managerial career and the impact that he's had on the game. Um, Obviously spent the great chunk of his career with Ajax, played there from 1964 until 1973, having also grown up in their academy from the age of 10, uh, would be the biggest part of the golden generation of Dutch football, uh, both for Ajax and for the Netherlands, would win six league titles with Ajax in his first stint and three successive European Cups along with five Dutch Cups, a European Super Cup, and an an Intercontinental Cup, which is the predecessor of the World Club Cup. Um, He was an incredible footballer. Could play anywhere. Could play as a nine, could play as a ten, could play as a winger, you could play him in midfield. He was the definition of total football. Total football was built around players like, like him who could shift from position to position within the same shape. If you think of the Man City team last season, the season before, when they played without a quote-unquote striker and you had Rodri would sit and hold the midfield and obviously Canseo would step in from fullback next to him and the two of them would provide a platform in front of Walker, Diaz and Laporte. 
And then you'd have De Bruyne, you'd have Gundogan, you'd have Bernardo, you'd have Grealish at times, you'd have Foden, you'd have Mares, and all of them would move positions constantly. And it was like this carousel where they'd almost cycle through the positions. Now, you'd rarely get Mares on the left, but you'd often get Foden starting on the right and ending up on, starting on the left and ending up on the right. You'd have these players that were just completely interchangeable, very comfortable in possession, comfortable back to goal or facing goal, all inventive, all great first touch, good passers of the ball, and all of them capable of scoring goals. And all of them basically doing what Johan Cruyff did way back in the 60s and 70s. And the great idea of that Dutch team being that you should never get caught with a player out of position because everybody should be able to fill other people's positions. And Johan Cruyff was the the pinnacle of that. He went to Barcelona. He spent five or six years there. Won one league title. Won a league. I won a Copa del Rey. Not a not a hugely successful spell, it must be said. But his impact on Spanish football was immense. Uh, He would leave Barcelona, go play for the Los Angeles Aztecs, played for the Washington Diplomats, played for Levante in Spain because he wanted to live in Spain again, went back to America to play for Washington again. And then he came back to Ajax. Now, bear in mind, he was only 31 when he left Barcelona. He was still one of the two or three best players in the world. And he left Barcelona to go and play for the LA Aztecs. When he came back to Ajax in 1981, he was still only 34. He spent two years there. He had more success, won two league titles. Then he moved to Feyenoord and won the double, which was incredible. He actually won the double in back-to-back seasons, first with Ajax and then with Feyenoord. So, you know, even at that age, he was still a great, great player, but he retired to become manager of Ajax. And he spent three years as the Ajax manager, failed to win the league, but managed to win the cup twice and then the European Super Cup in the second season. It was at Barcelona that he had his real coming out party as a manager. He created this machine that would win four league titles, a European Super, a, a Cup Winners' Cup, a European Cup, a Super Cup, a Copa del Rey. This is the team that everybody called the dream team. This was Laudrup. This was Stoichkov. This was Guardiola, Nadal, Sergi Roberto. If we take a look at that, Ronald Koeman, of course, uh, a key part of that team as well. If we take a look, at the team that won the European Cup final, Andoni Zubizarreta in goal, one of the greatest Spanish goalkeepers of all time, Ronald Koeman, Albert Ferrer playing as a centre back. Now bear in mind Albert Ferrer was five foot seven or five foot eight. But in Guardiola's brand of football, which he'd obviously taken heavily from Rennes Michaels, total football, everybody can play where everybody can play. Uh Nando 
as the other centre-back. Guardiola at the base of the midfield. Juan Carlos as a wing-back. Eusebio as the other wing-back. Jose Marie Baquero, what a player. What an immense player. Started out as a very attacking player and just bought into what Guardiola wanted him to do and could play everywhere. Laudrup. There's a case that at the time Laudrup was the best player on the planet. With Maradona having so many issues and leaving Napoli the way he did, Laudrup was arguably the best player in the world at this point. Uh, Stoichkov and Julio Salinas up front. Obviously, they would bring in uh, on the bench, you've got uh, Chiki Bregerstein, now the director of football at Man City. Uh, Carlos Busquets, who, if I'm not mistaken, is Sergio Busquets' father. Yes, Sergio Busquets' father. He was the backup goalkeeper. Uh, Miguel Angel Nadal, who's one of my favourite defenders of all time. And Andoni Goicochea, who was a fantastic midfielder, just really hardworking. But that team was so interchangeable. Kuman could step into midfield and the... 3-5-2 could easily become a 4-4-2. Eusebio and Carlos would drop back into the fullback positions. Becero and Laudrup would push wide and it would be a Kuman guardiola double pivot. And if they needed to be strong defensively for the last 10 minutes, that's what they'd do. Those two would just sit on the toes of the centre-backs. And the great thing with Cruyff was he wasn't afraid to do that, but he would do it within his principles. So he would have his team drop into a deeper block, but he then he'd have them re- retaining the ball. He'd have them knocking the ball around in their own final third, playing little patterns that they'd work on endlessly for ball retention. And then they'd look for an out ball. And they'd look to get in behind the opposition. I think he is slightly, slightly overrated as a manager. In terms of when people talk about the Johan Cruyff way, it's really the, it's really the Renus Michaels way. Now, Cruyff did tweak things and add to things, but the basic premise of how they played was Renus Michaels. So I would say, as a player, I think he's become underrated. When I see people talk about the 10 greatest players ever, I often see Cruyff either left out entirely or in like the eighth or ninth spot. And I just think that's too low. I think he's a top five player of all time. And it's not just what he did with Ajax and with Barcelona. Like you think to the national team. They were the greatest bridesmaids in the hit or yeah, the greatest bridesmaids in the history of, of international football. Runner-up in 74 at the World Cup to the Germans. They were the better team. They played the better football. Runner-up in 70, sorry, third place in 76 at the Euros. Uh, The Czechs would obviously go on and win it. Having knocked out the Netherlands in the semifinals, they beat, the Netherlands then beat Yugoslavia in the third and fourth place playoff. The Czechs would beat the Germans on uh, penalties in the final. And then without Cruyff, 
they got to the 78 World Cup final after Cruyff refused to go. The thing with Cruyff was he was a notorious arsehole. And he fell out with everybody. Because he just had this... It was almost like he had a difficult time understanding that not everybody was as good as him. And you hear this a lot about great players. The same was often said about Beckenbauer as player and manager. He couldn't understand why not everybody was as good as him. Now, those that were close to Cruyff speak glowingly about him, obviously. But when he passed away, there was a lot of people that had fallings out with him who couldn't help but fawn over him because of what a genius he was. And he was, without question, a footballing genius as a player and a manager. Like I say, I think he's a a smidge overrated as a manager in the same way I think Guardiola is a smidge overrated as a manager because much of what Guardiola is lauded for, he took from Cruyff. So when people talk about, oh, Pep has changed football, no, he hasn't. The stuff Pep has City doing and had Bayern doing and had Barca doing is stuff Cruyff had Barca doing and Ajax doing in the 80s and 90s. And Renus Michaels had them doing in the 70s. So I, I don't buy into this idea that Pep has changed the game. Pep is a phenomenal coach. And I think Cruyff was a phenomenal coach. But if we're looking for the true genius behind the practices, it's Renus Michaels. In the same way that when people talk about Klopp changing the game with pressing, I just turn and point to Rigo Saki and say, well, hang on, he was doing it 20 years before him. And then I can look at Saki and much of what he did, and I can look at Valery Lobanovsky and say, well, he was doing it in the 70s. And then I look at Lobanovsky and Renus Michaels, and I think, well, both of you, what you're, what you did, you leaned heavily on what Gustav Sebes did with the golden generation of the Magyars, the Hungarian national team in the 1950s. Because football is a simple game. And it's cyclical. So things come in and out of fashion. We have eras where teams play 4-4-2. We have eras of the back three. We have the back three and the sweeper. We have a sweeper behind the back three. And all of these things come round every so often. 4-3-3 is the thing. Now, at the moment, it's this inverted fullback nonsense. All of these things are not new. All of these things you can find if you go back through the history of the game. Like Pep, for example, playing a 3-2-3-2. Well, that's the double M. We had the WM formation. We had the WW formation and we had the double M formation. In the 40s and 50s, this isn't new. 
This is Pep brilliantly borrowing from what others have done eight years ago. So that's why I think with, with Cruyff, as a manager, I just think he's a tiny bit overrated because I think he's given credit for stuff that wasn't his. I think he's given credit for stuff he, he, he took from the best manager he played under. As a player, I think he's a little bit underrated. I do. I think, like, there's no there's no world in which Cristiano Ronaldo is a better footballer than Johan Cruyff was. It's just not even slightly the case. Cristiano's a better goal scorer, but as a footballer, not even, not even close. Cruyff was, you watch the footage of me, just the grace, the fluidity, the two-footed nature of him, could dribble both sides. First touch was otherworldly on bogs, not on the pitches we have today, not with the beautifully manufactured sculpted footballs we have today them boys are playing with like big sacks of like soggy wet leather if it rained the ball got heavier back in the day and the ground was just churned up cabbage patches and yet the ball would be glued to his feet and he could beat players he wasn't he wasn't someone that would just knock the ball past people and run. He would beat them with skill. He would beat them with the manipulation of his own body and he would beat them with his mind. Like there's, there's footage of Cruyff. He's playing in the inside left channel. Ball comes to him. He takes a touch. He squares the ball between his feet and he just looks at the guy in front of him. And then he looks to one side and the guy's head snaps because he's he's wondering what Cruyff has seen. And in that split second where his head snaps around to look and see what's to his left, Cruyff has gone to his right. Now you can say that's bad defending, you can say whatever you want, but it was this aura of Cruyff. And we see every so often there's this rare player that has this aura that overwhelms opposition and if you're a basketball fan the most obvious one is Michael Jordan Jordan had this aura where defenders went out and if they could keep him below 40 they considered it a good night Messi has it Cruyff had it Pele had it but not all even the greats don't always have it like I don't know that Zidane had this I don't think Cristiano has it. Maradona had it without question. This aura that they're not just a a human, that they're some sort of other life form. Cruyff had it in spades. Just different level as a player. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And it's a shame in so many ways that he had the fallings out that he had and he didn't get to... I think he should have achieved more as a player with the national team. They they would have won that World Cup in 78 with him. I don't think there's any doubt they would have won that World Cup with him. 
but he's a three-time Ballon d'Or winner. He was uh, third place in 75. He was two-time golden boot winner in the Eredivisie, despite the fact that goal scoring wasn't his main attribute. Just sensational. Absolutely sensational. Uh, right, let's move on. Next question, also coming uh, from Twitter, is from Andy F, A Form 3. Uh, big, fa- big Villa fans from Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're a Hornets fan, you must be excited that Jordan's going to sell the club. Uh, what positions, upgrades, and players might Villa target this offseason to legitimately compete for Europe next season? Love the pod, listen, Daily. Thank you very much for that. Um, right. I I think, assuming Emmy Martinez stays, you're set in goal because he is outstanding. He's one of the best in the league. I'm not massively keen on either of the left backs, uh, Moreno or Dina. They're both much better going forward, obviously, than they are defensively. But I'm not sure it's a position that Emery will look to address this summer, given he just bought Moreno in January. And unless Dina leaves, which is possible, uh, I don't think he'll address that. Maddie Cash is is very inconsistent. Like when Maddie Cash is on his game, he's excellent. He's good defensively. He's good going forward. Then he has games where he's good defensively and atrocious going forward. And then every so often he'll have a game where he's good going forward and just looks completely lost defensively. So right back, maybe you might look for somebody with a bit more consistency, but I would be okay with keeping Maddie Cash. I think you definitely need to go and get at least one centre-back. Ezri Konza has dipped from where he was a couple of years ago, though under Emery, I think he's refining his best form. Mings, to his credit, is having probably his best season since Villa got promoted, but I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him, and he's a big guy, so you're not throwing him far. Diego Carlos, obviously you lost him very early to the Achilles injury, a torn Achilles is no longer the career ender that it was in the 80s and 90s, but it can be a career-altering injury because it can sap players of their pace. And Carlos had a decent bit of recovery pace, so we'll see how he recovers. I would be looking for a starter, a starting centre-back to come in early dominant, to lead that defence, to get them playing a little bit higher up the pitch as well. So you're looking for a little bit of pace. So that would be one. I love Jacob Ramsey and I love this shape that Emery has Villa playing, which is almost like almost a box midfield where when everybody's fit, it's McGinn and Ramsey playing in those wide roles, then coming central when Villa get possession to get in between the lines and make things happen. So I love Ramsey. Abubakar Kamara is outstanding. I really like Douglas Luis, but he, he does frustrate me. And I'd probably look for an upgrade on him, but I think he's the ideal third central midfielder. So you want someone that can play instead of Douglas Luis and then with Douglas Luis when Kamara needs a rest. Um, I would replace John McGinn. I, I'm just not a John McGinn fan. Now, again, 
He's been a lot better of late, but I still just, I don't like him. Don't like him as a player. And then it's generally kind of a pacey option plus Watkins or Wendia plus Watkins. Now, Joan Duran looks a real talent. And Bertrand Traore is back. And he has all the talent in the world. He just doesn't have anything between his ears. I'd be looking for somebody to play alongside Watkins. Now, I've said I've said it multiple times. I would love to see Villa go and get Ivan Tony and play Watkins almost in that second striker role and let him work the channels and run in behind and have Tony play as the back-to-goal target man. But Tony's facing a long ban, and I think Watkins is probably going to be your nine moving forward. Um, so I would say Villa probably need four players. Centre-back, one in midfield, in central midfield, one for the wide right role, and one for up front. Now, here's the thing. Apparently, Chukwemeka should still be at the club, so he should be an option here. Gerard made a mess of that. Jacob Ramsey's brother Aaron is meant to be superbly talented, but probably not quite ready to be a starter. So he'll join the squad next season, I assume, as a as a squad player. Um, starting at the back, if Saints go down, I'd be inclined to suggest Belakotchup for Villa. I think his pace, his command in the air, with Konza or Carlos as a more experienced sort of talker who can talk him through a game, could be a good balance. Now, Emery might prefer to get somebody who's more experienced. That's, you know, generally managers like Unai Emery like more experienced players. So the best thing Villa can do is start looking for players who are maybe entering the last 12 or 24 months of their contract. Because if you're going to be spending on four players, you want to get as high a quality as you can without having to spend hundreds of million. Now, Pau Torres is an interesting centre-back. Emery obviously has managed him before, but he has been linked to, with respect, bigger clubs, higher-profile clubs. So he might not be an option. He might not be willing to move to an Aston Villa. But it would be worth kicking the tyres on because he's out of contract in 2024. So this summer, there's a chance he could be had at a pretty decent fee. In terms of 2025 out-of-contract centre-backs, again, you're going to pay a little bit more for them, obviously, because they'll have the two years left. But Roger Ibanez of Roma is an interesting one. Axel de Sassi of Monaco. Now, he's been linked to United. 
I think he'd be better off going to Villa. Uh, I think he's a starter for Villa. Maxence Lacroix is one I always mention for Villa, and I, I do think he just makes a lot of sense. He's 23. He's got two years left on his deal. He hasn't had the best of seasons, so he his value has dropped off a little bit. I think he'd be really interesting. If Forrest go down, Musa Niakat is interesting. Now, he missed much of this season with injury, and I I think if he was fit all season, they'd be a bit more comfortable. Lacroix is always the one that pops to me for Villa, but I would definitely kick the tyres on Pau Torres as a ball-playing centre-back, especially. Now, he doesn't have the pace that I mentioned, but he reads the game brilliantly. In midfield, I'd go all in on Kefren Turam. I think Kefren Turam with Bubakar, uh, Bubakar Kamara is a really good blend. Kamara has that control. He reads the game brilliantly. Positionally, he's outstanding. He's a great ball winner. Protects that defense. And Turam is that dynamic, leggy, box-to-box midfielder who's a great ball carrier, a good passer. Not as good a passer as Kamara, but a good passer. Also wins the ball a lot. And I think if you put them together, I think that's a really nice blend. Now, he'd be probably 30 million. I don't think that's outside Villa's budget. I think Villa could absolutely afford to go and do something like that. For the wide midfield role, if Forrest go down, I'd be going all in on Morgan Gibbs-White. I think if you put Morgan Gibbs-White into a midfield with Kefren Turam, Bubakar Kamara, and Jacob Ramsey. I think that has the potential to develop into a really, really special four. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Gibbs White is 23. Yeah, he's just turned 23 in January. Aaron Ramsey, I think, is 22. Oh, sorry, not Aaron Ramsey. Jacob Ramsey. Aaron Ramsey is his brother and also a mediocre Welsh midfielder. Jacob Ramsey will be 22 in May. Uh, Kefren Turam is also 22 this year. He just turned 22. And Bubakar, I think, is 24. Yeah, he'll be 24 and not till November. So you're talking about a, a foursome of 22, 23-year-olds all on the same trajectory the same timeline, I think that gives Villa a really, really strong long-term midfield that can grow together. And you look at the other players that you have available, obviously, you know, if you keep McGinn as a squad player, um, you've got Tim Bonham. Is that his name? Bonham? Um, The kid who's on loan at QPR, I think he can come back next season and be a contributor in midfield. He's 19, turning 20. You've got the other Ramsey, who looks a really good player. He was at Norwich early this season. He's now at Borough. He's playing well all season long. Uh, six goals in 20, 23 championship games is a good return for a midfielder. Uh, he's one, he's now 20. I'd be looking to bring him back into that mix as well. 
And all of a sudden, with, with the four starting, Ramsey and the, the kid who's on loan at, at QPR, they're six midfielders, 23 and younger, that you can develop over the next three, four, five years, as long as you can keep them. And you're, you're Aston Villa. So you should be able to keep them. There's also Finn Azaz, the Irish midfielder who's at Villa. I quite like the look of him, but he's, he's, he's English-born, but he plays for us under 21. Um, I like the look of him, what I've seen of him. A lot of talented Villa. Great academy. So Gibbs White would absolutely be my top choice in that right-sided role if they go down. Now, if they don't go down, it'll be tougher to get him. Could you look at... I mean, Eberichi Eze would be lovely in that role as well, given a bit of freedom to come in field, but he's a hard enough worker to play that role. If you wanted someone that's a little less creative but offers great graft, has plenty of talent on the ball, has versatility, and can be moulded into whatever you want, Alex Scott from Bristol City. And the thing with an Alex Scott is you bring him in, you can rotate him at McGinn. Now, the difference is obviously McGinn is left-footed, Scott is right-footed, same with Gibbs-White. But I, I do think, I, I love the idea of Gibbs-White and Ramsey in those two roles. I think they'd be brilliant together. Um, off the striker, again, if, if Forrest went down, Brennan Johnson would be a hell of a get. Brennan Johnson would fit like a glove next to next to Ollie Watkins, but Let's leave Forrest alone. We're, we're taking Gibbs White from them. Um, Nicholas Jackson's interesting. Now, again, he's someone that Emery has worked with before. He was meant to join either Southampton or Bournemouth in the January window, and something happened with his medical, so I don't know what the situation is there. But he's really interesting. But the one I'd actually go for, now, his club are going to get promoted from the Championship this season, but I'd still just go and buy him, is Illamen and Jai. I think he's, I think he's tremendous. And him and Gibbs White have played together for Sheffield, uh, Sheffield United in the past, so there's a bit of a connection there already. But I think his ability to link midfield and attack, create for others, score himself, I think he'd be a really good fit. If you could get Lacroix, Turam, Gibbs-White, and Njai, I think Villa would be set up to be a really good team. The only doubt I'd have is that left-back spot. But... Next summer, you go and you upgrade maybe the two full-back spots or the left-back spot and one of the, and the other centre-back spot next to Lacroix. This, this can be done over multiple years, but I, I think you add those four. They're all young. They're all high-potential players. And I think they're all players that, if it ever comes to it, you'll sell at a profit. You'll make... Significant money, probably on most of them. Now, who else is that a comp? Is there anyone? I'm wondering if there's a Bubakar 
that you could get this summer. Marcus Turam, I mean, if you could get his brother, if you could get Catherine and Marcus, Marcus Turam and Ollie Watkins would be a problem up front, but they are very similar. So it's probably not one that you want to go. They probably would overlap a little bit too much. Uh, whereas Enjoy, I think, has that really nice skill set to complement Watkins. Um, Tosin Adarabio would be a good get as a centre-back for, like, your third centre-back. I don't know if he's a European contender caliber starter, but I do think he's very good. And he's only 25, so he might be one that's worth looking at. Um, Jan-Paul Van Heck at Brighton's decent. He's on a free as well. Uh, midfield, let's see. Who's a, who's available in midfield on a, on a free this summer that would fit at Villa? The way Emery's playing, the players they have. I think you want to go for a younger age profile as well. I, like, I think that's important that Villa continue to build with a young team and not do what Gerrard did of bringing in the Coutinho's and Diego Car- Carlos's of the, of the world. Um, there's actually not a whole lot out there this summer in terms of midfielders who would be of interest. Though, Jason Knight on a free from Derby, just as a squad player that can be developed, he'd be interesting. Um, Tom Davies would be a decent get for the numbers, you know, just to have an extra body in there who's a willing runner. Board players. There isn't really anybody. There isn't really anybody. See, just more more often than not, you don't get gems on freeze in their early 20s. The fact that you got Bubakar Kamara remains incredible. Marseille allowing that to happen remains one of the dumbest things any club has done in the last 10 years. And that's saying something because there's been a lot of dumb clubs doing a lot of dumb things over the last 10 years. But that was a particularly special... Um, a particularly special thing that they did in allowing that level of player to run his contract out at that age. Evan and Dickett doesn't really interest me for Villa. I think he's a little bit too erratic. Tosin will be the one. Bensi Bayani from the Algerian left-back at Gladbach. I, I do like him. I do like him. But Again, you've just you've just bought bought another left back in Moreno, so I don't see it as something that Villa are likely to. They'd be my four: Lacroix, Turam, Gibbs White, and Illaman and Jai. That's the four I'd go for. I reckon if if Forest go down, you probably get Gibbs White for thirty five million. Turam is probably thirty, and Jai is probably thirty. And I think you probably get Lacroix for 25. So that's 120 million, which is more than within Villa's capability. 
with those owners. And there's a couple of lads there you could look to sell and move on out the door. Um, you could look to sell John McGinn. I would. I would sell John McGinn. I'd look to sell Tyron Mings off the back of a good season, but you've just given him a new contract, so unlikely. But, you know, you could sell Luca Dina and you get a decent fee for him and you could pick up a backup left back fairly cheap or pick up a backup right back fairly cheap and move um, Ashley Young to left back if he's going to, assuming he's going to stick around for the year. Um, right, so hopefully that one is that answered. Let's move on. Um, AMK2889. Some questions about Pep and City. Should Pep's managerial career be faulted to an extent because he's never had to struggle as a manager in the sense that his first job was one of the greatest club teams ever in Barcelona, then Bayern, who usually win the league and often do the domestic double, and now City have bought them. So, yeah, I, I think it definitely is. It definitely it does call into question, could Pep do it at a club where he isn't just given everything? Like, he walks into Barcelona. He inherits Thierry Henry at the end of his at the end of his prime, Samuel Eto'o at the end of his prime, Carlos Puyol in his prime, and then and Xavi in his prime, and then the greatest academy class of all time: Messi, Iniesta, Busquets, Pedro, PK. That, that, that just ludicrous, ludicrous team. Then he goes to Bayern, who've just won the treble reigning European Cup winners. Like like the man says, they win the league every year. If you don't win the league at Bayern, you're sacked. If you do win the league at Bayern, you can still be sacked because it's like going to McDonald's and then celebrating that you got a free toy with your happy man. You didn't win anything, you just gave it to you. That's just what happens. Like, Nagelsmann won the league, they sacked him. Kovac won the league, they said he was the worst manager they ever had. Carlo won the league, they sacked him. They just, you have to win the European Cup at Bayern or you're a failure. It's as simple as that. If you don't win the European Cup at Bayern, they don't remember you. Pep failed at Bayern. As as mad as that is to say, given what he did there, he failed because he didn't win the European Cup. And he was brought to City to win the European Cup. Now this season, he could well win his fifth league title in six years. Seven years. Fifth league title in seven years. But he was brought to win the European Cup. You've also got to call into question, can he win a European Cup without Lionel Messi? You know, that's a big factor in these things. Yeah, you won it with him. You haven't won it without him. He won it without you. But you haven't won it without him. In a way, it's like the Bill Belichick-Tom Brady debate. Brady went and won a Super Bowl without Belichick. Belichick hasn't won without Brady. So who's the master and who's the puppet? I do think there are questions to be asked over Pep. Could he do it without having the greatest generation that Spanish football has ever produced, just handed to him, plus one of the two best players the game has ever seen. At Bayern, I mean, you, you, if you can't win the league with that, that, that Bayern team, 
you've got major problems. And at City, you've just been handed everything. Been handed things. Gets given all the money he wants. Never has to. Never has to worry if he needs a another fifty million pound fullback. He can just go and buy one. He knows they'll find ways to cheat and hide hide things in their books. And yeah, I mean, put him in charge of Spurs now. Put him at Brighton. Put him at, I don't know, put him at Sassuolo. Now, look, because of what he did at Barca, he's never going to have to try and worry about those kind of jobs. He'll always get whatever job he wants. So my guess is at some point he'll manage, I, I think at some point he'll manage in Italy. And it'll be with Juventus who'll bend over backwards to give him everything and he'll probably win multiple league titles. I think he'll manage the Spanish national team at some point. Now, that'll be a big test because they they won't have what they had a couple of years ago. Uh, That won't happen again for a long time. I think he'd like to manage Brazil. I think the perfect job for him is, is managing the US men's national team and overseeing everything from grassroots up and been able to completely sculpt US soccer in his ideology. That, to me, is the perfect job for Pep because they will give him everything. And the talent pool is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Think of it. Think about it. 300 million people. And look at the players they're starting to produce. That's only going to get better. And a manager like Guardiola will be smart enough to put things in place where if there's a kid who's got a choice between, I don't know, baseball and football, ice hockey and football, whatever, they'll choose football, soccer, as as the Americans enjoy calling it. Uh, To be fair, we call it that here as well. I don't know why I said that. In Ireland, it's soccer as well. It just is because football is Gaelic football. Um, but yeah, I do think there's questions to be asked about whether Pep could do it at, at lesser clubs. Um, Tom James, if you had your pick of managers, who would you have? Who would you have? Incl- oh, who would you have to if you're inclined to move on from Jurgen? Uh, there's limited elite managers that make much sense. Uh, well, uh, look. You know I love Diego Simeone. Don't make me say it. I would take Diego Simeone, but that's just me. And I'm not saying he's a better manager than Jurgen, but he's as good. He, he is as good. You can argue it all you want. You might not like the style of football. That fellow won two league titles with Atletico Madrid against Barca and against Real. And when he won his first one, Real were European Cup winners and Barca had probably the best club side in Europe. So argue to yourselves, I'm taking Simeone. He's also won two Europa Leagues. So I'm taking Simeone. Um, but of of people that, you know, wouldn't repulse parts of the fan base. I take Ruben Amaram because I love how his team plays. I think he's probably the best young manager in the world. I think he improves every player. I think he's tactically quite switched on. He has had success. He's won a league title with Sporting, overcoming Porto and Benfica. So that's that's a big plus. 
So he'd be one. I'd take the Zerbi. I just I love the style of football. I know he hasn't had the same level of success, but didn't he win multiple Ukrainian titles? I think he did. Or one Ukrainian title. Let's have a gander here. Uh no, he did not. No, he did not. Uh he won the Euro- Ukrainian Super Cup. Um, he only had one year there Uh, to be fair yeah he only had one year there I don't know why I was thinking he'd have multiple he had one year there Um, I love his style of football though I I just think his team are probably the most enjoyable team to watch in Europe with maybe the exception of Napoli but they're when Evan Ferguson is playing instead of Danny Welbeck they're right up there they're just they're so much fun um, Marcelo Gallardo is someone that fascinates me. I like the style of football. He's had really good success, but it's not in Europe. So it's hard to judge. But at the same time, I'm not one of these snobs that tries to make out like Bruno Fernandes only played half a season in his career before Chelsea bought him, he had played for River. So we do have to take into account the success that he had in South America. Uh, He won a Uruguayan Premier Division. He won an Argentine Premier Division. He won three Argentine Cups. He won two Copa Libertadores. That counts for a lot for me. Um, He also won the South American version of the Europa League. So, you know, he's had great success. Um... So he would have to be on my list. And then Abel Ferreira would be on my list as well. And again, I don't know that people would necessarily love the style of football. But he won the Brazilian title last season. He's won two Copa Libertadores. I think he's I think he's a great manager. I think he's a great manager. And uh, I was really impressed with what he did at Braga when he was there. Did quite well with PAOK. And he's done brilliantly with Palmeiras. Like, absolutely brilliantly with Palmeiras. So, that'd probably be my five-man shortlist. Simeone. Conte's free. I'd have, he, I don't care what people say. He's still an, an elite manager. Simeone, Conte. I don't care if people don't like the style of football. I like winning. Ferreira. Gallardo, Amarim and De Zerbi are the two that are probably most realistic. And De Zerbi would be my pick. Despite the fact I think Amarim is going to be the better manager long-term, I think De Zerbi has a slight edge in him right now, and the style of football is just phenomenal. So that's that's who I would look at. Uh, Kieran or 99 do you think this is a make or break summer for Jürgen I do I do I think if things haven't improved by November I think he's got to go I think he's got to go and to be honest the only real reason I'm not more in the camp of he should go now is because I think we need him for the summer for the recruitment because we're not going to have Champions League so we need to have a selling point and Klopp will be that selling point um, but if it doesn't turn around early next season, it, it's time to go. I don't care what you've done. It's about what you've done lately for me. And if this team is not going to be winning, 
then we need to replace you and find someone that can win. Might be heartless, might be cruel, but that's just how it is. Um, Matt JT, this is the last one. From a PR point of view, do you think Liverpool need to sign Bellingham? Can FSG and Klopp afford another big name to slip through the fingers or to get outbid again? I think they'd be highly embarrassed from a PR point of view if they didn't. Because they threw away this season. They've waited on him for years. And with too many, it wasn't like... It wasn't like this. Like, when Chuamani slipped to the fingers, it wasn't like this. It, it wasn't all day, every day, media focus on it. Everybody's been talking about Liverpool's pursuit of Jude Bellingham for 18 months now. And it's been every single day for a year now. So, no, I don't think they can afford it. I don't think FSG can afford the optics of seeming to let Jürgen down again. Um... Who are some of the players you think are you think the really smart clubs like Napoli and Brighton could sign for little fees and be able to sell them in a couple of years? Okay, uh, well the first one that springs to mind is Arsene Zakarian, the young Russian midfielder slash wide player slash attacking midfielder from Dinamo Moscow, almost joined Chelsea uh, last summer, but deal was blocked because of the ongoing sanctions. Uh, he'd be one that I think Brighton or Napoli in particular, I think he'd be brilliant at Napoli, um, should be looking at. Um, if you want a goalkeeper, one that's standing out to me um, over the last little while is Leopold Walshted. Keep an eye on him. Plays for odds BK in Norway. Big, good with his feet, rangy. He's the type of goalkeeper I think a smart club snaps up this summer. Um, What's that centre-back's name? Leonidas. Leonidas. Leonidas Sturgeu. Leonidas Sturgeu. Is that his name? Yes, Leonidas Sturgeu. Uh, plays for St. Gallen in Switzerland. A little bit on the small side for centre-back, but I think he's a very, very good defender. Very accomplished, good on the ball, strong, aggressive. 21, I think he's going to be... I think he's a leader at a top club in a couple of years. Uh, Ronnie Edwards is a name to keep an eye on. He plays for Peterborough. Again, he's a little bit short for a centre-back. He's 5'10", 5'11". But if you wanted to kind of a defensive right-back, he can be your man. Uh, Jacob Greaves of Hull City is a, is a player I really like. Uh, he'd be one I'd be keeping a close eye on. I mentioned him earlier, Illiman and Jai. Alex Scott, I think they're both players that smart clubs will look to uh, will look to snap up in the in this summer transfer window. Um trying to think. If Cologne go down, keep an eye on Eric Martel, uh, young midfielder there. He's a good player, a very, very good player. Rodrigo Gomes from Braga is another one. Could be a bargain to be had this summer. 
I'm guessing he's going to get squeezed out. This is one for Brighton. Liam Delap of Man City. I think he might get squeezed out there in the summer because they've got so much talent. There's such a log jam then there that he might get squeezed out. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Antonio Nusa is on the move again this summer. He only jo- He's at Club Bruges. Uh, he's a 17-year-old winger. Huge promise. Keep an eye on him. He'd fit a number of clubs in the Premier League or in Syria for what they will need over the next couple of years. And he's ready to play senior football now. So keep an eye on him. Um, Who else jumps out to me? He's gone to Leipzig, isn't he? That the the kid at Anderlecht, isn't he? No, the Anderlecht goalkeeper is not the one. The Bruges goalkeeper is the one going to Leipzig. The Anderlecht goalkeeper Bart Verberen, I think I, I can't think of his actual surname. Uh, keep an eye on him. He's really really good, and um, there's a there's a real feel of. Like a taller old black off him. He'd probably never be that good. Never be old black level good, but I think he's going to be really, really good. Um, I'm trying to think of another defender. Oh, closer to home. Well, not for me, not for you. Um, Chiarodia, Chiarodia, Fabio Chiarodia at Werder Bremen, centre back. One to absolutely keep an eye on. He's got he's got something about him that I really like. I don't know how we ended up with him at Verde, I say we because Werder Bremen are my are my German club since the days of Dieter Els. But I don't know how they ended up with him. Um I don't know what the full scenario is. Um but he's an Italian underage international. And the few times I've seen him for Werder, which is maybe three. I think he might might have only played three or four times, but the few times I've seen him for Werder, he looks exceptionally good. Um, Comfortable carrying the ball out from the back, really good passer of the ball. Two-footed. Yeah, that's it. He's the type of player that someone could nab from Werder because they'd be silly and let him leave, and he'll mature into an absolute monster of a centre-back. Um, could even be a defensive left-back if you wanted to do that and have someone in the Abidal role. So, yeah, there's some names for you now. Um, right, last thing we'll do is today's gossip. So, Chelsea are holding, are considering holding talks with Antonio Conte over the vacant manager's job. I, I don't, just don't see it. Uh, Xabi Alonso has emerged as a contender. I, I don't see it. Too early. Leicester are set to demand fifty million for James Madison. They can demand all they want. He's had a contract in a year, so they're not getting it. Tottenham are interested in Rodrigo de Paul. They've got no manager, so I don't know what they'd be interested in. Into Miami are willing to offer Lionel Messi an equity stake in the club to convince him to join. That's you know that's the type of thing I think could happen. 
Um, I still think it's better, it, you know, that he goes, plays for whoever and gets his own team. You know, like I said, Phoenix or San Diego would be the two cities, I think, that would make the most sense for him. Arsenal have opened talks with Yuri Thielemans. They've been linked with him for a long time. Um, Arsenal view Roberto De Zerbi as a possible possible replacement if Mikel Arteta leaves for Real Madrid. Mikel Arteta is not leaving for Real Madrid. Chelsea have started negotiations with N'Golo Kante over a new contract, says the spoofer with the catchphrase, who told us back in August and September of last year that these contract talks were almost agreed. Uh, Leicester are considering an experienced caretaker like Martin O'Neill or Rafa Benitez. Um, Benitez is the one. Martin O'Neill is no longer viable as a manager. Leicester have identified Graham Potter and Thomas Frank as options, while Ralph Hasenhutl and Jesse Marsh are also under consideration. Rafa till the summer, then Potter. That's the play. But, as Guy pointed out yesterday, if West Ham opens up, that's a more appealing job. Uh, former Borussia Mönchengladbach manager Adi Hütter could also be an option for Leicester. Good manager. Failed at failed at, at Gladbach, but he did well at Eintracht. Leicester are favourites to sign Valencia's 22-year-old goalkeeper, Georgi Mamardashvili. Um, isn't he? He's massive. I think he's like 6'7 or something. Or I, think, I might be thinking of somebody else, but I think he's huge. Um, six six, six six. He's got a, a absolute whopper of a buyout clause. It's like it's like eighty something million. Uh, I assume he'll go for considerably less, but yeah, he's um, he's very talented, very very talented. Burnley want to sign Ajax's 20-year-old Dutch winger Sanchi Hansen in the summer. Don't know much about him. Ajax are in... Sorry, Arsenal are in negotiations with Reese Nelson's people over a contract extension. I think it makes sense. I think he's made a valuable contribution this season when called upon. And that is it. That is me for today, folks. Thank you as always. And I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Network.